Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe Weekly Podcast. Talking Joe's there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the codename for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose, to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. The podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest-running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. The one that comes out on a birthday at any rate. Today we'll, we will be talking about G.I. Joe issue 282, but before we get into all of that, let me introduce the Basil Fawlty to my Manuel, it's my co-host, a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn! Hello Mark, and hello listeners, I'm well, and I'm in California. Wow. Uh, this is, I'm fully vaccinated, and uh, it's been a year and a half since we visited some family so it was starting to feel urgent, but also mm. doable. So we are visiting family, both near Los Angeles and near San Francisco. Magnificent. And is it's a whistle-stop tour of just seeing lots of people being busy, or is it, you know, some time to chill out as well? Uh, there has been time at the, the hotel swimming pool and time to sit on a couch with a dog watching the news. Uh, wow. Time, time Hotels! To, exclamation uh, mark. Swimming pools! <laughs> Dogs. I'll, I'll, you know, what sort of world are we living in? Also, a guest room uh, at, at you know the family. <laughs> Next, home. you're going to be telling me that you've been on a plane or something crazy. Uh, we did fly and uh, rented a car, and sat in some Los Angeles traffic, which always brings to mind the summer of '99 <laughs> and the summer of '04 and '09 and '12 and '16 when when I've made trips to Los Angeles. Lots lots of sitting in traffic in Los Angeles. Mm. Um, but uh, this this would not keep me away from from the podcast. Uh, the the release date was uh, June 9th, Wednesday, June 9th. That's right. Mm-hmm. I had already left Massachusetts. I was away from my shop. So had my shop gotten a Real American Hero number two eighty two, I would not have been able to get it in time. My store did not get it, and. Uh, Seems like some East Coast stores did not get this issue, although I haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, that's anecdotal. But um, West Coast stores, at least two in California, uh, did. And uh, there was one just two miles from my brother in law's home. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so uh, while the niece and nephew were distracted uh, watching a movie and two of the grown ups could steal away. Uh, we drove. <laughs> we drove down the street to uh, the comic seller. That's C E L L A R, in see. Alhambra, uh, and I got there 
I got their last copy of Real American Hero 282, um, which was both very exciting and also a little nerve wracking because you and I, <laughs> you and I had this appointment to record three days later. Uh, and I had thought, I had thought uh, perhaps I could have, uh, if it had shown up at my shop back on the East Coast, I could have my manager overnight me a copy in case I couldn't locate one in California, in case there weren't any stores nearby. Uh, other options included seeing if I could get a review copy, like a, a PDF from the publisher. I'd prefer not to read it on a screen or joining one of the uh, online comics reading services and uh, you know subscribing and sort of buying a copy that way. And as a uh, as a store owner of a brick and mortar comic book shop that sells paper comics, I very much do not want to join Comicsology or whoever. Mm. Um, uh, much less to read one uh, comic book. But uh, that, that was an idea, but uh, the comic seller in Alhambra uh, had it. It was uh, very exciting, both for myself and my wife, because we like to check out comic book stores when we travel. Mm -hmm. This is something that we do. And uh, had a little kids section in the front. The cash register area was two glass cases with you know $100 uh, back issues. Uh, left wall mm -hmm. was... New releases and last week's releases. Middle was uh, some island book shelving with graphic novels. There were maybe 10 long boxes of back issues in the back and uh, a wall on the right of Funko Pops and then maybe 10 or 15 uh, long boxes of dollar comics. And one of my favorite things is to find dollar boxes uh, and to uh, buy um, bad superhero comics from the early 90s that I once owned and got rid of because I needed to make room or got taste, buy them again and read a few of them on a trip. Even better, but much rarer, 50 cent boxes. Mm -hmm. um, so the comic seller had some uh, dollar bins and I got some, uh, got some bad superhero comics from <laughs> 1993, some uh, Marvel UK, some early image and some uh, sort of middle early valiant. Also, also I should say some Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle Batman, which is, Ooh, which nice. is a, a great find for a dollar bin. Uh, what Marvel UK? I got uh, die cut number one, uh, <laughs> uh, die cut versus G force number one. Um, some version of death's head something. I don't know if it was uh, death three or death's head two gold number one. Uh, 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 I should note that the artist of uh, die cut versus G force number one uh, is John Royal. Oh, wow. And uh, his Very pencils, exciting. his pencils, both his storytelling and his actual drawing in that issue are very much in the sort of, uh, Liam Sharp, 1993 school. Liam Sharp doing Jim Lee in 19 in 1992, 1993. Yeah, I mean, he made a big kind of mark because of his involvement with the creation of Death's Head Two, not too long before that that period. And so, yeah, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think if you if you were operating in the Liam Sharp mold, that then you're kind of onto a good thing at Marvel UK at the time. Hmm. And and for those for those of you who are scratching your head, uh, as as I say, John Royal, uh, John Royal has had a long cover run on the IDW GI Joe or a Real American Hero 
uh, drawing variant covers, one of which we'll talk about in a moment. Mm. So just a just a bit of synchronicity there. Uh, there were no GI Joe issues uh, in the dollar bin either. Uh, Classic Marvel, which is uh, probably my favorite experience of the last ten years when I'm at comic book stores, or nor uh, more recent ones. Uh, but there were uh, GI Joe issues in the back issue bins for you know two and five and ten dollars, which is a different kind of thrill because then I then I feel like. This thing that I love so much is um, important and coveted. Cool. And is the comic seller is is it underground? No, no, it's uh, <laughs> it's disappointing. Uh, if if you are uh, if for those of you who are listening to this podcast, uh, I did take a couple um, not amazing photos, including one of me with my thumbs up in front of the shop. Uh, so if if you are watching this. Uh, the audio version with pictures on YouTube, you have already experienced four or five or six of my not amazing photos from inside <laughs> the shop, uh, taken very quickly because we had sort of a 20-minute window to get the comic, also buy some things, and uh, get back to the niece and nephew because that's actually what this visit was about. <laughs> yeah. Did anything exciting happen in your G.I. <laughs> Joe week? Um. What exciting things happened? Um, I got my hat. That was uh, that was on uh, viewable on the the last YouTube video that we did when we caught up with Shane Shimmick and looked at his uh, sketch collection. So I was uh, yeah very, very excited about having a hat. I've got hay fever, um, so that's also very exciting. <laughs> Maybe exciting isn't the right word, but uh, annoying. We have had people painting walls to make our house look less like it's been terrorized by two children and a dog. And uh, yeah, lined up uh, our next sketchbook chat as, as well. So uh, we're, we're you know, getting into the big guns here. People with uh, proper collections of real important issues and covers and all sorts. Unlike my noodling with uh, my little sketchbooks. So uh that's exciting. That will, that will uh, follow next month at some point. Uh, if I can say one more thing about the novelty of buying a G.I. Joe comic book at a comic book store, um, what was embedded in that whole story about finding a shop that was nearby uh, and sneaking out to get it, because <laughs> uh, we were actually with my brother-in-law for the two days to see my brother-in-law and his family, and um, is... Uh, there, so the, the the feeling here was anxiety that I might not get the new issue of GI Joe mm -hmm. in time for this podcast. Mm -hmm. And having owned my own comic book shop for the past ten years, that is not a feeling that I have had in a decade. Missing the new issue of GI Joe or getting it late, right? I know it's going to mm -hmm. come a week ahead of time because we get our shipping list, and then it's there. Many copies, in fact, and I can take my pick. And then, you know, for 10 years before that, I had a subscription box, a pull box at uh, my then local comic book store, which is still out there and now uh, just the friendly competition. So the, the feeling here was uh, a little bit of 1990 or 1995 when, uh, I, I should say, before I ever found a comic book store, there was a brief period where I was buying G.I. Joe month to month on a, on a rack at a a newsstand at a bookstore and I didn't know when it was going to come out and uh, early in my uh, reading I did miss an issue 
And so this feeling of, okay, I've got three days, either <laughs> in, around Los Angeles or <laughs> in the next one day up in near San Francisco, I have to find a store that has GI Joe. It can't be too far away. And this has to be a reasonable, you know, half hour or hour or two hour jaunt away from the family homestead for certainly everyone understands that, you know, this podcast is one of my jobs, but uh, on this sort of uh, desperate and long lost family visit, you know, the, the, the feel, the inertia would be like, no, no, don't go shopping, stay here, <laughs> right? We're, the family's here, right? Like we're going to have dinner or we're going to sit in the, in the, on the stoop with the niece and nephew. Um, so I'm, I'm uh, reading this comic. I felt a little giddy, like, Oh my goodness, I have the new issue of G.I. Joe. Dun, dun, dun. So but now behold, we can. Excalibur. Yeah. Now we can <laughs> thoroughly talk about it. Comic talk. Oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them. Tim and Mark discuss them. Whoa. Comic talk. Oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them. Tim and Mark discuss them. Whoa. So issue 282 released this week, uh, 9th of June, uh, this week at time of recording anyway, uh, at, but uh, interestingly, interior dated April 2021. So giving us a bit of an insight into some of the scheduling difficulties that, that have uh, been encountered here. Um, we've got writer, as always, Larry Hammer, artist, Andrew Lee Griffith, colours, Jay Brown, letters, Neil Utaki. Senior editor Tom Waltz, editor Megan Brown, and research specialist Diana Davis. So the sit rep is Murdered by Assassination Part 2. The Joes have been called to Washington, D.C. in order to explain their recent off-the-books operation in Springfield to rescue Snake Eyes, Operation Snake Cut. But there's more to the secret congressional subcommittee running the show that meets the eye, and it be, may be down to the newest Joe of all, codenamed Sherlock, to reveal the dangerous truth. Dun, dun, dun. Um, let's have a look at the things that adorn these comics. What are they called again? Covers. covers. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Uh, cover A is drawn by Andrew Lee Griffith with colours by Jay Brown. See, Andrew Lee Griffith has stolen all of those letters for his middle name and left Jay with just one initial. Yeah, last month uh, when you were uh, first rattling off the credits for the issue, uh, I think we were both um, uh, a tad surprised that uh, uh, Andrew Lee Griffith, who has drawn a lot of Transformers comics for IDW in the last few years, had previously gone by Andrew Griffith and is now going by Andrew Lee Griffith. Just a just an interesting small change. So this cover is um, Sherlock and Chuckles in the foreground with their mm -hmm. sidearms at the ready, leaning against... Uh, a, a Greek revival column with behind them is the Washington Monument and also the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol, which means they're in Washington, D.C. Night sky. Uh, also behind them is Helix, and she has uh, two fancier pistols, and she's walking towards them. And uh, the image is drawn at, to use a film term, a Dutch angle, uh, where mm. the, the camera uh, is tilted. Yeah. So could so name because the cameraman has got a pancake in one hand and is uh, very steady. Knowing my film history, that is absolutely correct. Thank you. Um, 
So uh, uh, notable about the cover is that Chuckles is here. We haven't seen mm -hmm. Chuckles uh, in a while. And uh, this is also the sort of proper debut of Sherlock's um, oh, yes. act actual costume. Because on the previous cover and in the previous issue, she's in uh, her military fatigues or she's in, I guess, a hospital gown at the end of the previous mm -hmm. issue. This is a fun cover because it asks a question. And the issue, to some extent, uh, answers the question, uh, right? So who are these two or three Joes after? Or what are they looking at of interest off to the right? In terms of composition and color, I am a little confused about Helix's placement and color treatment. Because if you didn't know who Helix was, you might think mm. that this is a bad guy who's sort of sneaking up behind them. And mm -hmm. if your if your response is well that pose isn't like sneaking, that is a pose that we see the Baroness in, in a lot of like covers and pinups and maybe some movie posters. Uh, sort of this mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. uh, this like sexy dangerous walk with arms low and out, sort of brandishing pistols. So because I know who Helix is, I look at this cover and I think oh they've got backup. But in terms of sort of the story of this cover, right? Because the lighting on her is different. There's much more blue in her, whereas Chuckles and Sherlock are lit from the left. I feel like her, her placement and her color, Helix is a little bit sort of fighting with, uh, with the logic of this image. And if she, if she was just sort of closer up with Chuckles and also, you know, getting ready to like jump around this corner with the two of them, mm -hmm. then if you did that, I guess she'd be covering the Capitol building, the dome, but then you can move that to the left. So... Um, I do like this cover. Uh, the story of it is a little muddled. Yeah, and and we to, to note as well, we don't see chuckles on the interior of the the issue. Probably the you know the note that was given to uh, Griffith at the time was uh, to include these three characters. I guess with the intention that chuckles probably would appear. Um, obviously, he he hasn't, but maybe that's a hint that we will see him later on in the arc, perhaps. I was, um, by the end of the issue, I had forgotten that Chuckles was somewhat promised to me. <laughs> and uh, I finished the issue and I took a breath and I smiled and I flipped back the cover and I said, oh, right, Chuckles. Oh, man, Chuckles wasn't here. What a bummer. And then I thought, as you just alluded to, I bet he's showing up next issue. That's great. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll mention it. When we spoke to Nitho Diaz uh, not too long ago, he was somewhat dispirited that uh, his design for the ARA version of Helix was not used outside of his own treatment within the pages of uh, Silent Option. Uh, and uh, again, we we see both here on the cover and on the interiors, the, the design uh, of Helix that is being used is that of the original design for, for Helix rather than Nitho's redesign. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I get that it's the more prominent one when artists are doing the research, if they're looking at the toy, if they're looking online at other characterizations, this, that one will be the one that uh, appears unless they're specifically told to use the other design. And um, it's probably slightly more striking to be fair as, as well. It's got um, that kind of the, the corset kind of look to it. Whereas uh, the Nitho Diaz is, is a, is a slightly sort of spared back kind of almost superhero-y top look to it. So, so I can understand the the reasons why you might 
find yourself using it as an artist, but also might want to use it. This was uh, this actually made it into my notes as well. I thought the same thing. I thought, hey, isn't that the the uh, the IDW Chuck Dixon universe continuity mm-hmm. uh, design? And uh, either through decision making or attrition, I feel like we're losing the Nitho Diaz yeah, redesign, yeah. which is a, a bummer in that anything that gives Real American Hero more of its own identity. I mean, at this point, you know, that it has outlasted the the original IDW, uh, what I call the PG-13 IDW continuity. <laughs> uh, whereas Real American Hero by Larry Hama, I think of as PG. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, you know, the original costume is cool. I, I also noticed actually that the um, the variant covers to Silent Option did also feature the uh, the Chuck Dixon version of the uh, Helix costume. So it wasn't... Um... Even even mm. on the on the covers of the that original series, they weren't com- being completely faithful to just one de- one design. Well, the next time uh, we get a Helix action figure, whether it's in some movie tie-in line or some uh, classified uh, uh, version, we're going to see yet another version because they're going to either add a bunch of bits, <laughs> or they're just going to sort of if you know like change it and get it half wrong. You know, it's going to be like red. <laughs> You know, with like pirate boots or something, but yet still, <laughs> yet still yellow and corsety mm-hmm. on the top. Uh, cover B is drawn by uh, Freddie Williams II with colors by Andrew uh, Dalhousie, and uh, this is uh, the second of five interconnecting covers uh, mm-hmm. where we have a tableau in Washington D.C. in front of some famous D.C. buildings. Uh, we see here prominently in the middle ground uh, roadblock having just punched. Uh, uh, a crimson guardsman uh, getting pushed away from him, a viper sort of taking cover, uh, an alley viper perhaps ready to swing in the background, uh, Duke uh, holding a pistol and Lady J is holding a, a submachine gun. Um, I like this cover. Uh, I think this is definitely one of those cases where when you lay several pieces of Bristol board next to each other to draw a, a long gatefold mm-hmm. cover or connecting covers. And I should note, I think Freddie Williams II draws digitally, so there may be no okay. crystal involved. But when you're working extra horizontally with wraparound or connecting covers, uh, you're very much aware of the dividing line between the covers. Uh, and so you tend to have a certain bunching of characters mm-hmm. uh, and then a little bit of sort of breathing room or negative space where uh, you can have the edge of a cover. Um, and... Uh, and what sometimes happens with these kinds of covers is, let's say you have five interconnecting covers, maybe three of them are really bold and exciting, and two of them are a little less so because you just need variety, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you think of uh, Jim Lee's covers to X-Men number one in 1991, uh, mm-hmm. the cover, uh, cover D, E, I forget, the final one with Magneto, mm-hmm. right, is particularly bold. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the other covers, you know, or the X-Men just sort of four of them at a time, sort of walking, sort of battling to left <laughs> to right. And those are very exciting covers. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, the Magneto one, it's all him. Uh, so mm-hmm. I feel like, I feel like Roadblock is, um, sort of in his size and positioning, uh, considering what he's doing here, like holding his giant machine gun and having just punched a Cobra. I feel like his position and his pose is not that exciting. Uh, this also feels to be sort of a made-up roadblock costume, which 
makes me a little sad. Um, and since he's a little smaller and farther away, and he has a made-up roadblock costume, um, and Freddie Williams II drew a version of G.I. Joe in the other continuity um, on some covers uh, for the, the final series by uh, Aubrey Sitterson. Uh, and that roadblock didn't have a mustache. Uh, I'm looking at this cover, um, this, this G.I. Joe 282 cover B, and even though it's definitely Real, Real American Hero, I sort of do a double take and think, oh, is this the other continuity? Is that not my roadblock? Mm. Um, yeah, which is, I, had the same, I had the same thought. Is that is, is that from another continuity? Mm. And uh, the other thing that... Um, the other thing about this cover that doesn't quite work for me is that because there are so many elements, because Williams II's inking is um, uh, aggressive, right? Like, yeah, they're clean lines, but he's he's using an ink wash. Mm-hmm. So he's he's drawing in black and white, but then he's also doing like transparent gray uh, ink wash on top of it, you know, for mm-hmm. all the shadows and the undersides of things like the texture on the uh, viper's helmet and backpack then uh, dalhousie lays color on top of that and it starts to become hard in this scenario to separate Im- uh, elements from each other and so uh, characters have white I- outlines around them yeah and you know hector Greedo did that on the earliest gi joe package paintings to make like a gi joe character's arm pop in front of his torso so this is certainly allowed but what you also then get is uh, this sort of like tan mush that's around the Viper and the Crimson Guardsman that's between Duke and Roadblock, which is uh, sort of dirt or smoke and clouds because this tussle mm-hmm. is going on. And I think a cleaner inking approach and maybe a cleaner color approach, a less busy uh, one separates the elements, the, pe- the people in this better from each other. The other thing that I'm seeing in this cover is that the color and value of this sort of tussle, smoke, nebulous ground uh, on the bottom half of the cover pretty much matches the sort of sunset color yeah, on the top the sky, half, yeah. even though that's mostly blocked by the logo. So this is a good cover. This is not my favorite cover ever for Joe. Okay, and then the retailer incentive cover, we have got John Royal, who we were just talking about earlier. It's uh, Snake Eyes facing off against Storm Shadow. Uh, Inks inks as usual by Jagdish Kumar and colors as usual by James O'Frady. This is a cool cover. This is also an unusual composition for a G.I. Joe cover. We rarely have a character in the extreme foreground who we are sort of with and looking past and that's storm shadow here on the left i love the colors in this i love uh snake eyes's pose which slightly recalls some snake eyes poses we've seen over the years and if you're not looking at this image also slightly recalls that sort of iconic like iron man pose from the first movie where he lands and you know, sort of puts his fist to the ground. But here, <laughs> here, Iron Man, I mean, Snake Eyes, is holding two swords. We're also looking up in this cover. We're looking, we're mm-hmm. on a rooftop and I see a little bit of like air conditioning crap um, on the bottom right. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. We're on a rooftop and then there are other buildings in the background. And because I'm seeing a water tower, I'm thinking New York City or maybe San Francisco where the ninja uh, 
headquarters oh, yeah. is mm-hmm. for the Joes. Um, because uh, we're because we don't see Storm Shadow's left bicep, we can't see a Cobra insignia on him. So John Royal has put a Cobra insignia on his right bicep, which is a, a place on this cover uh, to put a Cobra symbol. So you know that this isn't just any ninja in white. It's the G.I. Joe bad guy ninja in white. This cover is very exciting and I love it. It only loses points because, <laughs> uh, as always, um, Snake Eyes is not in costume in this issue. Storm Shadow is not in this issue. They don't fight in this issue. So it's a wonderful, exciting drawing that has nothing to do with the comic book. And the uh, the Storm Shadow image um, slightly puts me in mind of issue 38, uh, which is a Mike Zek cover, which has got Storm Shadow in a sort of similar sort of position, but over on, on the right with his sword um, held up uh, to Destro, who is pointing his gun at him. And yeah, you know, different, but uh, but yeah, similar in terms of we're kind of looking over the the, the shoulder of, uh, of Storm Shadow. And yeah, curiously enough, that is actually a uh, cover that I had uh, commissioned John Royal to uh, recreate. So um, I own uh, the yeah, version of that as drawn by uh, John Royal, which Ooh. I'll be sharing at some point in a future sketch show. So I might even hold off putting it on the video. Uh, so, uh, what a great tease. Um, <laughs> one, once again here, um, uh, James O'Frady does really gorgeous color work where um, our two foreground characters and the little bit of foreground environment, the stuff they're standing on, is all warm colors, right? Storm Shadow isn't actually white here. He's light blue. And Snake Eyes, uh, the black parts of his costume have a lot of light blue in them. Mm-hmm. And then the background is all warm, right? So foreground cool, background warm. Uh, the background is all uh, uh, reds and magentas going down to orange and yellow. Um, and then the, the the sort of highlights on these characters is as if by moonlight, though the moon in the background is knocked back with some red. Uh, but the mm. the color clarity and language of this cover uh, is great. And one of the things that um, Jean Royal does really well here, which I appreciate, is um, the composition is quite precise. So if you if you look at all the elements, so um, Snake Eyes's sword his scabbard, his other sword, uh, his pistol sidearm, um, Storm Shadow's uh, ninja star, uh, throwing star in his left hand, the sword in his right hand, the dagger tucked into his belt, uh, the quiver of arrows, the little bit of um, scabbard from Snake Eyes that's under Storm Shadow's chin. All of these elements are very carefully arranged so that nothing is covering up anything in an unsatisfying or unclear way. Um, each of them, their symbols are very clear, and yet their poses are not uh, compromised in order to arrange all of these elements for clarity and satisfaction. Um, not not easy to do, right? We, th- we think of comics artists as people who draw, but they're very much people who arrange and lay out. And this cover is very nicely laid out, considering, uh, is uh, even stronger, is is gorgeously laid out considering how activated um, and busy it is. And I, I mean busy here in a good way. Sometimes mm-hmm. when I say things are busy, I don't mean a good way. 
And and I think you use the word precise, and I, I think that's the, a good way of describing John Royal's art is that it is very clean, very precise. That that you know every line is is very carefully thought about. He will work things through multiple roughs. He will often uh, work on characters individually and the background even individually at, at times, and then sort of assemble things things to, together. So it's got that very clean, precise look to it. And um, as nice an image it as it it as it is, yeah, I I would yeah I'd prefer it if we saw something something else. To be honest, <laughs> it's it's hard to get excited by a a a snake eyes a new snake eyes illustration. I think, uh, particularly when we're in the middle of such an interesting new storyline, it would be nice to to see something tying in tying into that. Yeah, this this could be you know one of the seventeen thousand variant covers for the Rob Liefeld Snake Eyes Dead Game miniseries. You know, I mean, there, there's a, mm-hmm. you know there's a comic that very much calls for random but gorgeous Snake Eyes, <laughs> Snake Eyes versus Storm Shadow yeah. uh, covers. But if something like this was, you know, Helix and I don't know why Helix and Chuckles would be squaring off in this same composition, uh, and certainly there are no water towers like this in downtown DC, but if you redrew this cover with some characters from this issue, like the mystery villain from this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. What a, what a segue. <laughs> okay. Cause there is a mystery villain in this issue as we will find out in the plot breakdown. In the Capitol building, the GI Joe oversight committee is holding a hearing to review the GI Joe attack on Springfield as detailed in the snake hunt storyline. The team is represented by a JAG specialist, Caseload. In the courtroom are Scarlet, Snake Eyes, Hawk, and new character, G.I. Joe accountant, Bottomline. Helix and Stalker provide armed security support. In the hearing, the Joes have to justify disobeying the orders to launch a rescue attempt for Snake Eyes. Meanwhile, outside the Senate chamber, Crimson Guard Fred501 is attempting to gain access in order to use the trigger word to activate sleeper agent Senator Wendy Ling Torres by claiming to be Wade Collins. Sherlock is undercover nearby, and reporting back to the team at the pit, they realise it is a Fred agent. But a mysterious cobra in a long coat, hat, scarf and sunglasses prevents Sherlock from intervening before he escapes the chamber, uh, but not after killing Senator Thormund Lartner and making his escape. Top down, what was your reaction, Mark? I enjoyed it. I felt there was a, it was... And, and coming to do to do that um, to do that recap plot by breakdown, um, thinking about all of the things that that were happening and how and what were the most important things to, to to cram in. It was a lot of back and forth of you know Cobra Commander back at Springfield, the Joes in the pit, what's going on in the courtroom, you know what's happening with the Joes, what's happening with the the senators at the front, then back to the uh, back to the uh, front of the of the Senate with with um, Sherlock and and the new mysterious Cobra and uh, the the Fred. It it moved very quickly and and it was a different ish sort of feel of to the issue than than not just last issue where that was you know big military you know outdoors middle east lots of vehicles lots of explosions lots of actions this is now smaller quieter courtroom character based you know still part of the same arc and still you know you know there's 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 stuff they're joining it but but very different feel to it and it's yeah very different feel to not just the last issue but i think a, a 
inverted commas, normal G.I. Joe issue. It's um, you know, this kind of courtroom intrigue. We've not really seen uh, an awful lot of that ex- uh, outside of perhaps the uh, the jugglers giving uh, the Joes a bit of a hard time at times. Yeah, as with you, I was struck and very pleasantly so by that this is a complete and satisfying story on its own and yet mm. also a part of a larger story. Uh, the courtroom um, excitement reminded me of uh, two, uh, I guess it's not a courtroom, I guess the, the Senate the Senate hearing, the closed door Senate hearing, uh, reminded me of two things. One, there's a scene in the animated G.I. Joe movie from 1987 where mm. Falcon's in trouble and he's he's getting some kind of court-martial. And mm. Hawk and what look like uh, Slipstream and Wild Bill and some other sort of Joe Brass, maybe Keelhaul, who you know, we never saw in the animation. Anyway, uh, there, there are five... Uh, he's he's standing before uh, a panel of five high-ranking officers, and the rest of the Joes are sort of watching in the gallery as he's tossed out of the Joes. So even though the the stakes and the scenario were different here in terms of a of an echo of of a GI Joe story, since we haven't had courtroom stuff, um, that reminded me of this. And then also, um, page one, right, seeing the Capitol uh, from the outside seeing statuary hall in in panels two and three uh, on the inside and then seeing a now familiar angle on uh the f- sort of front desk of uh the senatorial chambers in the capitol um you know inescapably is the shadow of the events mm. of january 6th 2021 the real life events uh where uh, which, you know, like I watched on the news that day as it was happening. Mm. And uh, and I recall, and I, I, I didn't I didn't grab it from uh, from Facebook four months ago or whatever it was. Um, but after that, around then, uh, on Facebook, Larry Hama posted something like, I'm paraphrasing here, something like, I've got a scene at the Capitol where someone attacks someone else, and now mm. I have to rewrite it. <laughs> right crumbs and or maybe it was even more specific maybe it's like i have a scene where a government official is killed in or around the capital and now i have to rewrite mm. it it's something like that and um from the context i got the sense that this was not editorial saying "Ooh, you got to change that this was a decision that either something in the gi joe story had inadvertently which he had plotted now felt too similar to what happened in real life and it would be distracting to readers or Mm -hmm. the writing of the story was now sort of made moot or ineffective. Uh, And, and then, and then, and that reminded me of, uh, you know, two or three events in the last many years where uh, like the ending of a movie or a TV show has been changed because of Mm -hmm. something big in the news. And then the timing feels painful and insensitive. Mm. Um, I was going to say, for example, the the Twin Towers loomed quite large in the original Spider-Man trailer um, and then uh, was, I think, removed from uh, from the movie, from the actual movie. Yeah. Uh, And the very first episode of 24 features a terrorist blowing up a plane. And it was uh, it was when the when the episode made it to air. This was, you know, after September 11th. 
2001. Uh, when the episode made it to air, I, I felt like that scene was sort of directed uh, a little indirectly. It's like it still happened, but they didn't make as big a deal of it visually. Um, anyway, so reading this entire issue, uh, January 6th, uh, loomed large, um, that there's something fascinating and upsetting uh, and terrible that's happening in the in the senatorial chambers. The uh, I just looked up the the quote from from Larry while we were talking. So seventh of January, he posted had to totally rethink a story I'm writing that started off with a congressional hearing. So you know the what you know what's significant is that I think anyone globally seeing the real life events of January the sixth, you know, it just gripped everyone and, and specifically people in the States and, and, and plugged into to what was going on. You know, it's one of those real world events where the world stops and gasps and, you know, can't quite think of anything else that's, that's happening at, at, at that time. And writing this issue, um, you know, inescapably, the shadow would have, you know, been cast over it and, and would have been an influence into to some degree whether whether he's whether that Larry would be trying to sensitively navigate the path both pathways of of not trying to look like he's cashing in on the ideas or or um you know be too on the on the nose you know to the extent you know that that maybe that this plot was kind of in in the air at that time before and and you know it sounds like um that that was the case and that he's tried to kind of find a find a way through it in you know in post post the events such that such that he can deliver then the the issue that that he's uh happy with in the in the knowledge with you know everything that's happened in the in the in the real world uh yes um that uh that that's a that's a fine um button you put on that that idea that i was trying to set up all right so uh page one in panel three at the bottom Mm-hmm. We see uh, five people, uh, and they're looking at a, a, a U.S. Capitol police officer. And one of them in the foreground has blonde hair, a light blue shirt with a coat over it and his hands in his pockets. And he's, he's somewhat mm-hmm. away from the other four. And I thought, oh, it's Chuckles undercover. <laughs> Because Chuckles is on the cover of this issue, so I've been yeah. promised Chuckles. And I mm-hmm. know that the Joes are doing something at the Capitol and they're worried about mm, a leak or uh, uh, a budget cut or something. Uh, and is that, or, or, a, or, or a murder by assassination, perhaps. Uh, and it turns out that that is not Chuckles. That is a Fred clone. So that was a fun, inadvertent misdirect. Yeah. And what... And what I'm also seeing for the first time looking at this again is that the the chap that we'll see later on in the in the long coat and the, the hat is also there on page one. I'm going to call that guy for now mystery bad guy because we don't mm-hmm. know uh, who he is uh, at all. Uh, and I think mystery bad guy takes less time to say than the chap in the hat <laughs> and the coat and the sunglasses. Um the, the composition of this final panel on page one is really nice because Sherlock is off to the left by herself, looking mm-hmm. right. So she's she's watching either Fred or Mystery Guy, uh, that married couple, um, and the U.S. Capitol Police, or she's you know looking at one of them or she's listening. And then 
immediately to the right, but closer to us, there's this Fred clone. And then immediately there's mystery guy who really disappears into the, this panel in the previous one, despite the fact that according to the rules of like crime or action fiction, he's the one who should stick out because of this costume, right? It's mm -hmm. like what he's wearing is a cliche. What, what I also like about this first page is um, I don't recall from the end of the previous issue that anyone says, oh, we're going to, or Hawk says, you're going to a closed congressional subcommittee hearing. But through the dialogue on this first page, Hama sets up what is happening. And it is expositional dialogue, but it's not, uh, it doesn't hit me over the head. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, like, like, uh, oh man, I can't, I can't believe we've just arrived at the, you know, the Capitol <laughs> for a congressional closed door, you know, like someone asks yeah, a question. Yeah, yeah. So can we see the Senate chamber? I'm sorry. The chamber is closed to the public today. It's like, uh, oh, and, and that pulls me in. Like why, why I better keep reading and turn the page. Right. And then mm -hmm. it turns out that there are Joes and it's a small thrill because one of them we've never seen. Uh, mm -hmm. One of them we've only seen for a panel or two in the previous issue. The rest of them, and all of them, are in their dress blacks. Uh, we spoke with Diana Davis in a previous episode about what the Joes are wearing when they're in their dress uniforms. Is it dress greens? Is it dress blues? Would it be different depending on which branch of the armed service a Joe is in? You know, would Shipwreck and Footloose be dressed differently? And uh, we saw Hawk in in black in the previous issue, which confused me, but I also mm. don't quite know in 2021 what Hawk would wear. Um, and so for sort of consistency here, uh, all the Joes in the scene are in this same uh, uh, dress black. Uh, I also like that as Hama always does, uh, through dialogue, uh, Stalker introduces everyone mm -hmm. to the readers. And uh, yes, even me, a longtime Joe reader and crazy person fan, like okay like there's there's a there's a female joe with red hair on the left i know that's scarlet and then there's a joe with short brown hair and sunglasses and i'm thinking that's throwdown but i don't actually know maybe that's hawk because mm -hmm. he's got sunglasses on because in the deke episodes based on that action figure the um the talking uh, talking battle commander mm -hmm. maybe hawk's got sunglasses right and then there's, I thought it was Stalker for a second, but that's Caseload. And then there's mm -hmm. Hawk and then there's Stalker and then there's um, Bottom Line. So, uh, and then similarly, um, in this expositional dialogue, Caseload explains in a quick exchange with Senator Raleigh why Helix and Stalker are A, also there, B, yeah. uh, in uniform, C, armed. Mm -hmm. And it's a great exchange that sets up the stakes Right. Like there might be a he doesn't say this. There might be a murder by assassination attempt, Senator. <laughs> and it's nice to see uh, Senator Ling Torres, who we haven't seen since. Uh, well, what was the arc around 225 called? Uh, Cobra World. Cobra, Cobra World, World Order. Order. Yeah. Yeah. So she got that tour right um, in the Cobra world order prologue, which was a regular monthly issue of GI Joe, but was not a numbered issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Cobra, uh, later on brainwave scannered her. And ever since I have been wondering when and worried if uh, Cobra would activate her and she'd ruin everything for the Joes today.
Uh, almost, almost today. We come, <laughs> we come really close in this issue, which which is great for tension, yeah. right? Because it's um, this is, you know, the the part of the plot here is that uh, this Fred clone is trying to get through the closed doors of this Senate subcommittee hearing yeah. to activate a Cobra sleeper agent, which is such a great uh, use of the brainwave scanner. Right, like we've seen a lot of stories where someone gets strapped in, or Cobra Commander is trying to get someone strapped in. Less so the sort of uh, will they or won't they anxiety and tension of no, this person already got strapped in. Like mm -hmm. this story was promised to you many issues ago, and now we're going to follow through, or maybe right at the last minute, not, yeah. and the good guys save the day. Yeah, literally years ago at this point <laughs> so it's uh it's the long game and uh yeah senator ling torres is the sleeper agent uh but uh, uh, ironically the person sat next to her the uh elderly senator is at times sleeping during this uh hearing by uh the looks of things the way that he's drawn on a panel uh up on page three and and then the second bit of irony here and i i i am i believe i am using this word Irony correctly in the sense of literature uh, that the uh, that um, uh, is it rain we, on someone's wedding day. Uh, I, I mean the, uh, the the author knows something that the reader viewer doesn't, or the reader viewer knows something that the characters don't. I, I believe those are the two kinds of irony: uh, situational irony and dramatic irony. If my my recollection of eighth grade English class is correct, I, th I thought it was when you had a fork when all you need is a knife. Uh, I, I think there were some knives on, on the retailer uh, incentive cover of this issue. <laughs> okay, sorry, um, Tim, continue. The irony here, besides your wonderful sleeper pun, is that we know Senator Ling Torres can cause trouble for the Joes because Cobra got to her. We don't know until the end of the story, until uh, the middle of the story, that Senator Lardner next mm, to her yeah. is also a sleeper agent. And one of the things that Larry Hama does in G.I. Joe stories is invent this kind of redundancy you know like you're reading a joe story and there's some joes like i don't know in a tank in the jungle and they're like we got to take out that bad guy across the way and like five pages later it turns out that another joe is like a mile further up the jungle with a mm -hmm. sniper rifle you know and then like 20 miles up there are two joes piloting a plane and that's going to pick them up right and, and the layers get peeled back so good drama I appreciate in this issue that Andrew Griffith, Andrew Lee Griffith, draws different faces on everyone. Um, mm -hmm. Senator Raleigh, her, her, it's not just that she has glasses and her hair is, you know, a little shorter than Ling Torres. Her face is wider. Mm -hmm. And um, particularly in the scenes back in the pit where Duke, Psychout, and Mainframe are, Griffith is attempting and pretty successful at drawing not just different hair, but different noses and like cheekbones and chins on Duke, Psychout, and Mainframe. Uh, Griffith does this again with the Fred clone, right? His eyes are a little closer together. Uh, you know, Duke is Duke is a little uh, beefy, both you know in 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 his neck and his 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 face. Um, so I, I appreciate these differences, you know, particularly in an issue that's mostly talking heads. Uh, how did you feel about uh, the art in this issue? 
I don't know that it was necessarily as strong as the the first issue, and I think it's a difficult issue for for an artist, and um, you know, particularly uh, an artist on on GI Joe, where I'm sure the artist will go in hoping for lots of action and, and adventure and excitement, and and you and you've got a lot of talking heads. It it felt at times like perhaps it it might have been slight. There might have been maybe t- more time pressure. That that you know that's just that's just a guess. That that perhaps uh, that that might have meant that that maybe some things were perhaps looking you know le- looking less polished perhaps or, or or less detailed. There's there's quite a few of panels where there's not a lot in the way of background, and I, I you know wonder at times whether whether that's necessarily stylistic choice or, or just pragmatic way of saving time um we've talked about before about the need for background in every single panel you know if if it's been established as you know you've got a good sense of place you don't need it in every single background so so it's not necessarily bad per se but um you know it's 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 a a, a choice or or evident in 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 the issue i want to i want to take that idea uh, a, a touch further I do think, I, th- I think there's some circumstantial evidence that Griffith didn't have as much time to draw this issue because we know that he's not drawing the next issue, mm. uh, which suggests that the schedule uh, is getting a little backed up. More than just um, many panels don't have backgrounds, particularly in the second half of the issue, Griffith keeps the camera to close-ups or medium shots, right? A close up in film language is head and shoulders and a medium shot is waist up and then a long shot is full body. He keeps the camera mostly at close ups and medium shots. Where he's doing long shots full body, there's either not much background or no background. And the sort of uh, test or like tell for me that this is a little rushed is that he never swings the camera back and down to show all of the seats behind these six Joes who are in the front row, right? I mean, if you think of the Senate chambers, it's not just this fancy sort of tribunal desk podium thing in the front. It's also like a hundred chairs in a semicircle around it. And then the upper galley, we never see the upper galley, uh, excuse me, uh, gallery. <laughs> we never see the upper gallery. Um, when when mystery bad guy jumps up on the um, front desk to to execute the senator a few panels earlier, when uh, Sherlock barges through the door, when uh, on the next page Throwdown tackles mystery bad guy and then lunges for the grenade, um, Griffith is not drawing, uh, is not pulling the camera back. Um, there's never a very wide shot where we see um, many many characters scattered very small with lots and lots of chairs and sort of curved raised uh, you know like steps like a like in bleachers or in a stadium which is how the senate chamber works and the story is all clear i'm never like confused where someone is or where someone went you know it's never like is that so and so's hand or someone else's hand but um, this is, uh, I think, indicative of some reasonable shortcuts mm-hmm. for, a, for a time crunch. Yeah, We're, we've just got Andrew Griffiths credited as the artist, haven't we? So he's, he's doing both pencils and inks, you know, assuming that he, he's working in that fashion. 
Um, so, you know, he's, he's a one man team in, in terms of, uh, the division of, uh, labor there. Um, I want, yeah, be, be good to, you know, hopefully we can get a chance to talk to him and, and find out, uh, you know, how, how his technique, uh, and, and approach to, to his art works, um, you know, whether, whether with, a combining with a, with an Inca might, might, um, might have freed him up to, to maybe, uh, take a slightly different approach to the pencils and, and not knowing they had to then ink him ink himself. What's I did notice about the the style is that that he uses quite a fine line in terms of his his inks. There's um you know like it like it's a, a you know relatively fine micron or something like like that. It's it's not there's there's not a lot of not a lot of thickness to to most of his uh his his lines or or even sort of a huge amount of spotted blacks that uh that's you know quite an open open style with a, a relatively thin line yeah as with the last issue i would love to see griffith inked by someone who is adding a lot of heft um there i'm just going to throw two names out right there's no reason that idw would hire you know tom palmer uh, who might be retired at, at this point, you know, Tom Palmer inked a lot of Marvel in the seventies and eighties and, and nineties, but Tom Palmer inks with a lot of heft, uh, or to go in a, a different direction, you know, Klaus Janssen who inks with a lot of heft and also makes things, um, I say this in a complimentary way, dirty and scratchy. Um, and you know, like on the cover, there are some, very thin lines for Chuckles's forehead and his cheekbone. And mm -hmm. I think that's fine, but I'd also be really happy with a line seven times that thickness for, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, like the, the bottom of his jaw and where his arm ends and the sky behind it begins or the, the background behind it begins again, yeah. the, the, the art, the art style doesn't get in the way of clarity. And there is weight to his characters. They don't feel like they're mm -hmm. going to like blow away if I like sneeze in front sure. of my comic book. But just from a graphical standpoint, you know, he's drawing with a real light touch, and I would just like more, more weight. Yeah, someone someone who might do a good good job is uh, Guillermo Ortego, who was um, inking Jason Burroughs on uh, on Punisher so Soviet, and, and he sort of got a good ability to follow uh, a, a sort of quite a detailed line but then um be able to to vary up uh the the sort of the weight of of that that line um as as he's as he's going yeah very impressed with his work and it might be quite a complimentary um style but uh, as yeah, we've really as we've seen uh, uh brian shearer ink many issues of gi joe and in a few cases get called in to ink someone who was to pencil and ink their own issue of gi joe um, sort of for for like consistency and and uh, inertia. I wonder, could Brian Shearer like what would his what was his, what would his inks look like on top of uh, Griffith um, from a you know from a editorial standpoint? Um, it is a, it is a little uh, you can stretch the budget further if you're the editor of a comic and someone is penciling and inking as opposed to if you have a penciler and an inker. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was a little surprised in this issue that there were no footnotes for the three flashbacks. And I know that snake hunt as a story arc gets referred to in the mm -hmm. recap on the inside front cover. Mm -hmm. But, uh, three times we, we see a drawn flashback, uh, to, 
either of the events of uh, Snake Hunt, there's this reference to when uh, Senator Lynn Torres was brainwave scannered. And this one I don't think would need a footnote, but we even see a tiny visual flashback to the uh, long range reconnaissance patrol, the LERP group uh, back in Vietnam when Duke and company are trying to figure out if it's really uh, Wade Collins. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mind that there were no footnotes, but this is a series that has always used them. So it's, it's more than welcome to continue using them. (laughs) Yeah. I guess, I guess the, the, the snake hunt thing, um, flashbacks in particular, should be pretty, you know, pretty close in people's uh, memories, given that it was the, in terms of G.I. Joe continuity, it was, what, only two issues previously, even if, uh, you know, if you, if you get what I'm, if, if you get what I mean, if you skip past the untold tales, most right. of these events were from, from the very last episode of uh, Snake Hunt, um, which, you know, only, only then has the first, is- the first issue of, um, murder by assassination in, in between in terms of the storytelling continuity. Um, something that Larry Hama does here, uh, which I like. Um, so he's always come up with clever and funny explanations or excuses for the Joes doing things that they're not allowed to. It's fun. And, and it, it, in this case, it's fun and it adds tension that they get called out for it. Mm, right. Absolutely. So, so, you know, we have previously seen, uh, I think this happened once or twice in the Marvel run, the sort of this threat of like, it's like, well, we can't go on this mission or we can't rescue this person. It's like, I think I'm going to take my leave right now. And maybe I'll <laughs> mosey as a, as a private citizen, maybe I'll mosey over to that place and rescue my friend or complete that mission. And that's a big part of Snake Hunt. Um, and, you know, much of Hamas G.I. Joe is this military group doing what it does. And as often as we talk about the jugglers on this podcast, they actually don't show up very much. Uh, this idea that there'd be congressional oversight to the like mission and budget of GI Joe. Um, so it's, it's, it's a welcome plot point that it comes up again here. I also appreciate that this issue doesn't have the jugglers. Cause I feel like, yeah, uh, okay. that became, a little overused or certainly with like the devils do run um sort of uh a little gimmicky or or sort of overused and underused at the same time but yeah um so so in a previous issue the the shows are all going to take vacation at the same time so they can basically disobey orders and uh caseload explains so the and they get called out on it here by yeah. one of these senators in this really great exchange and then Caseload talks it down, like t- does an end run around it. Hawk says, we put a request for a mission, for rescue mission through channels and we were denied. And then bottom line picks up, lack of funding was the given reason, but the Joe team has been operating under budget for years. The original requisitions were channeled through Black Ops funding based on seized illicit assets that fell under the Schrodinger Katzen Act, specifying, and then Senator, uh, Senator... Uh, Raleigh interrupts. You can dispense with the boilerplate poppycock. What I want to know is why you took it upon yourself to disobey orders, dot, dot, dot. Um, This is, this is fun. And this is great, right? Like who can stop the Joes? Cobra, the Joes themselves, right? Like, uh, like this mission isn't worth it. Or like, oh no, I've been hurt. Call off the mission. And a Senator, Mm -hmm. 
right? You know, like Larry Hama has invented um, terms and countries, and we have one here, which uh, which I can leave for for uh, for you to call out later. Uh, in, uh, <laughs> let's in, we, in, let's cover it now. <laughs> all right. So uh, this is this is Hama time, Hammer time, Hama time. Time to beat the soles of your boots with my face. Sucking chest wounds, red ninjas, brain scanners, rubber hooses, blue ninjas. And some more sucking chest wounds. Hammer time. So, uh, so what this is supposed to look like is some piece of government, uh, some government rule right? The, 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 the Schrodinger Katzen Act, which specifies something about channeling government funds mm-hmm. from one column to another, right? And so if you're a kid and you're reading this, you're thinking like, oh, that's some like fancy government stuff that I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Cool, right? If you're a little bit older, you might think, I wonder if that's real. I should look that up. And then you do, and you realize that this is just a reference to um, Schrodinger's cat, which is this can, can you can you describe it it's this so it's, it's, con, a, it's this concept yeah. it's a thought experiment that illustrates a paradox of quantum superposition in the thought experiment a hypothetical cat may be considered simultaneously both alive and dead so what hama is doing here is he's he's making up some uh important and real sounding gobbledygook <laughs> that yeah explains how the joes can have the money and also not have the money so he's as a writer he's just (laughs) performing he's just performing some sleight of hand because he's faking me the reader out who takes him at his word like this must be a real thing or if it's not a real thing it's it's hama like probably renaming a real thing and Mm -hmm. like putting it sort of a, a a simpler version or a more modern version or like uh, a kid version in the G.I. Joe universe. But no, it's just gobbledygook. And, <laughs> and the first half the line, right? The original requisitions, right? Our original requests for money, our original, like, we're going to get the money, were channeled through Black Ops funding based on seized illicit assets. That's a real thing, right? Like, how does government pay for, um, for the military? Well, either we, like, take the pie chart of the congressional budget and we slice a slightly larger piece for the military, right? Appropriations. Either we, um, the government like needs a toilet seat and a toilet seat normally costs $5 and the government says it costs $25. And so those $20 get like funneled to, I don't know, the green berets Mm -hmm. or we like take down some drug dealer in another country or maybe our own and they've got a bunch of money and we just take that money and we give it to the green berets right so this line starts out as actually what happens and what would happen and then hama he, i mean he's not he's this is hiding in plain sight right like like ah the schrodinger katzen act right like you you know you google that and it's not a real thing and you realize this is a reference to so this this is Hama being clever and funny yeah. and not taking it too seriously. And then the fact that in the story, the senator calls her on it, right? Yeah. Let's dispense with the boilerplate poppycock, right? Like, that's really funny. But Stop also... fobbing me off with, you know, technical jargon that doesn't really mean anything and it doesn't really relate to the actual question that is being uh, asked here. But I like, I like that 
that that idea that you you came up with that well the, the sort of the illusion that that Larry's coming up with that the the GI Joe team is simultaneously funded but not funded <laughs> because it because because in the real world like how could GI Joe ever actually be funded right like you know in the comic in in the TV show it's like how many sky strikers go down isn't a sky striker like a twenty million dollar jet. And they go through a lot of them. I mean, less in the comic than in the show. But, and at the same time, I don't think Hama is like sitting at his desk. I mean, I do think he sits at his desk and stares because <laughs> that's that's what writers do. They sit at their desk and they stare and they're just thinking, right? They're like problem solving internally. I don't think he spent like days on this. Like, how do I come up with a line of dialogue that's going to explain? I think he had a notion and like wrote this very funny line, mm -hmm. which... I, th I think his experience in writing for many years means that this idea came to him somewhat quickly. Um, and to some extent, we can see this as him making fun of himself. Yeah. Right. Because like at this point, you know, like in previous issues, we saw like Rudatistan, like a mm -hmm. fictional Middle Eastern G.I. Joe country named after Ron Rudat. Right. Like all the fans are older. We know who Ron Rudat is. So that one jumps out as a kid like Barovia, it's like, yep, I take that at its at face value. That is an invented country, uh, but I'm not going to think about it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, anyway, so um, I, I like both the context, the subtext, and the symbolism of this exchange, and that it happens between a new Joe we've never seen before and a senator who we've never seen before mm -hmm. is, is extra interesting because, you know, if this was like... Cobra Commander and Dr. Mindbender or Hawk and Psych Out, it would have a different resonance, yeah. right? But this is all part of like, I think the Joes might get in trouble and get like, I don't know, court-martialed or defunded or something by the end of this issue. Yeah, I mean, at this at this point in the issue, it really just does feel like the the Joes on the on the ropes. And I think it's an important, you know, storytelling point and, it, and it's an important beyond that story to to tell at the at the time when we were reading snake hunt we were sort of somewhat incredulous at some of the you know the the story about you know the whole of the team being granted leave at the whole t the same time as like you know we were saying that's no way to for a large organization to to behave you'd sh you'd surely get in trouble with hr at some point down the the line for for letting everyone go at the same time and then hold up you know they're they're on they're on vacation and they're in their military vehicles and and shooting up a, a nice little american town you know there it feels like if they didn't do this you know it would it be be a sort of a, a leap too far in terms of what the joes could do and get away with that without it being knowledge acknowledged so i think this this issue is an important, uh, yeah, a, a port, an important reaction to the the, the snake hunt stories that that of acknowledging that that yeah, it does look like the Joes have gone too too far or, or acted in a way that wouldn't be overlooked, and, and that there does need to be sort of consequences of of some some sort. So so it's absolutely essential. It's it's recognised and acknowledged and done. Yeah, done well here. There's also a layer here where um so in the real world we know that there are several uh special forces groups in the military but we don't know what their missions are sometimes they're declassified after and we don't know who is in these groups and 
in the G.I. Joe story, right, in the comics, in the cartoon, there's always been, a, between the two of them, a different sense of just how secret or top secret G.I. Joe is. Uh, you know, in a later Deke episode, the president wants to give G.I. Joe a parade. And we don't do that with Delta Force, right? Because mm -hmm. then you'd know who they are. So there's this, there's this, there's this thing here where there are some Joes, right? And they've come to DC, but it's a closed door hearing and the Joes are only identified by their code names. And so the, the three senators get to talk about, you know, funding and sort of the role of this group. So I, I like, I like the realistic take here because GI Joe is, you know, ultimately only half realistic. Mm -hmm. Um, so I appreciate that nod to, it's like, okay, how would you actually do this, right? Because there, there could, in a different G.I. Joe comic, there would be a scene where just Hawk goes to talk to the jugglers or yeah. just Hawk goes to the Senate. And there's more drama here because it's Hawk plus several Joes who we know. And again, two Joes who we don't. And the fact that they're in their dress uniforms changes the context you know if they were all in their gi joe costumes it mm -hmm. might be a little more fun you know it's like i don't want to read a story where where bruce wayne is is in disguise as matches malone i want to read a story where batman punches a bad guy but um this is what the joes would do and then again like you have a numbers person and you have a lawyer right like mm -hmm. caseload is a jag right and and that's awesome um, I don't know that a caseload figure in this costume would sell, <laughs> right? If, if, the fa if, the, if the fan club were still around uh, and we're doing, you know, releases through the club, uh, the, the, the collector's club or through the convention, you know, it's like, uh, maybe you can take dress blues, uh, gung ho and do a new head or I don't know, take stalker's mm -hmm. head and color it differently. Um, there was, there was actually a, a Batman story. I think it was called Mr. Wayne goes to Washington, which was in the aftermath of the cataclysm events where it is technically the, it is technically part of the road to no man's land indeed yeah so the road to no man's land yeah so so gotham has been devastated by an earthquake and um you know batman can't really punch an earthquake um so so his role there is is that bruce wayne is therefore much more important and significant and using his Bruce Wayne persona to go to Washington and try and lobby for aid to, um, you know, pull Gotham out of the hole that it's in, which, um, this is a bit of a deviation, but, uh, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's sort of thematically connected, uh, to, to this, to this issue in, in terms of the, the difference in, in approach and the, the battle that Bruce Wayne was having there to try and secure, um, funding for, for Gotham is, you know, just as important as what's happening for the Joes here in, in battling in in a hearing environment to justify their actions and, and their existence with the with the stakes potentially being even higher than you know a battle against Cobra where you know they, they could lose and walk away and, and be back to fight another day. If they lose here, it, it could result in the, the GI Joes being heavily censured in, in in some form, potentially even, you know, facing some sort of uh, criminal action against uh, for for the activities that they took. That that's a good. So um, if we, you know, so Hama in interviews for many years has said that he writes GI Joe. He writes all of his comics one page at a time. That when he's writing page two, he doesn't know what's going to happen on page twenty. He doesn't know how the issue is going to end. 
And I, I think when we read these stories, we sometimes forget that or take that for granted. It's like, well, surely he kind of knows where the story is going to go. And, you know, this is a five-part story arc. So there, I get the sense that he has some idea where the end of chapter five is going to be. But I have to imagine that in writing pages five and six of this story, where the senator might cut off funding or court-martial a Joe or something, or a page later when Fred might get inside, the Fred clone might get inside and then does, and like is about to activate um, Senator Ling Torres as a Cobra sleeper agent, that there's a very good chance as Hama was writing this that those things were going to happen and that the issue was going to end up with the Joes in a terrible place, whereas the issue ends with the Joes having demonstrated to the senators, the two remaining senators, that not only was sort of the were the events of Snake Hunt justified, uh, but that you know G.I. Joe's existence is mm. justified and urgently uh, needed. So you know, re- reading this issue at the beginning, you know, your 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 top down comment was that there's a lot of um, cross cutting to use a film term, right? Back and forth between, mm-hmm. you know, there's the there's the Cobra Cobra Command is at Springfield. There are the Joes in the pit. They're the Joes in the Senate chambers, and then they're the characters just outside trying to get inside. And even within that, there's a Joe, uh, a Cobra, and a mystery someone. And um, what I like so much about this issue is not just the cross-cutting, but that the whole issue builds tension, that the stakes get raised from page one to page 18, 19, 20, and that um, I keep getting surprised, like, oh, it looks like this Capitol Police officer is going to successfully keep this Crimson Guardsman uh, in civilian clothes out. Okay, good. Oh, he, he's getting inside. Okay, well, uh, Shirley Stalker is going to know that this is uh, a Cobra and not his old friend. Uh, oh, Stalker uh, was, was, um, was convinced. He, he thinks it's his old friend. Like, okay, well, surely, right, it just keeps, it keeps going, right? And then, and then sort of the big reveal at the end that it's not senator ling torres it's senator uh, lardner it's not the the word the the um what is it code word password trigger trigger word um that would um unleash senator ling torres as a cobra sleeper agent it's the it's just a bribe uh for <laughs> senator lardner uh you know cobra commander makes yeah cobra commander makes a reference to a campaign contribution from cobra and um it's not the hypnosis of Lardner, I mean, you know, there's, 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 there's all this satisfying redundancy in the story. I mean, like redundancy, not like ideas being repeated, but additional ideas being layered. So Senator Lardner has this USA flag pin on his lapel. And I noticed it early on because uh, it's one of those things that's, it's a very small prop and yet it has a lot of detail because yeah. you know the colorist like comps in these little stripes on it so you just sort of notice it as opposed to like the entire space of this guy's forehead or his 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 jacket or the desk um and i thought huh that's usa flag pin and then suddenly cobrick manor's talking about it and then suddenly it's like a camera and also it's an rf jammer right and then the joes can't they're cut off back at the yeah. back at the pit. You know, mainframes like, well, we're being jammed. So uh, lots of fun, considering no one pulls out a machine gun and drives a tank. <laughs> yeah, 
I like I like this idea of Larry writing from page to page and and not knowing maybe if the co if if the Joes are going to triumph at the end of this story or not. So it's almost like uh, Schrodinger's cat that that at the mid in the middle of the story the Joes are simultaneously winning and losing. <laughs> uh, uh, Larry Hama is in the middle of the story simultaneously knowing where it's going and being satisfied and also like panicking and not knowing where it's going. <laughs> so uh, f- there is one small storytelling uh, bit, which is not confusing, but a little lightly unsatisfying mystery. <laughs> okay. bad, mystery. This is very small mystery. Bad guy. Um, uh, Throwdown tackles him. He pulls out a grenade and tosses it at Scarlet. Mm-hmm. Throwdown jumps for it, which is, wonderful because uh throwdown is a version of snake eyes and we expect snake eyes to sacrifice himself for scarlet and mm-hmm. also any joe to sacrifice themselves for any other joe and and in that same panel that throwdown is lunging mystery bad guy pulls out a grappling hook and then in the next panel he's swinging like spider-man <laughs> over these sort of semicircle of over this semicircle of of desks um um, and then in the next panel uh he makes it to the door and rushes out and he's laughing so two tiny things i don't quite understand one um what does he throw his grappling hook at Mm -hmm. and i think the answer is like the upper gallery Mm -hmm. of the senate but also like how does he swing because if you're if you're low, you have to like jump up really high to start the sort of the edge of the pendulum to swing forward. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just going to, it's close enough, right? Like he, he gets away. I don't, yeah, I'm so. 80% clear on how like physiologically he gets away, right? Does he, does he use his leg muscles? Is there some like um, spongy tension uh, in the, in the grappling hook rope, whatever. Um, two, in that final panel, as he's making his way through the door, He's laughing, ha, 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 ha. And there's a big sound effect, bang. And I thought, did someone shoot him? Is he shooting someone? Did he just shoot himself by accident? <laughs> oh, did the, oh my gosh, did the grenade go off? Mm. Well, why would that be off panel? And then in the next panel, Scarlett's holding the grenade and she says, plastic dummy. He had to get it through the security metal detectors, right? Which is another like great, Hamaism, where Larry Hama is just thinking very smartly about the logic of this scene, right? Like if that didn't happen, 500 people would read this comic and three of them or 60 of them would say, wait a minute, how did this guy sneak a, a grenade through the metal detector? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in looking at this page now, I think the bang is just the sound of the door yeah. slamming open. Yeah. Um, but, and, and in comics, bang is a sound effect for doors. <laughs> Uh, getting pushed open, but it's it's much more often the sound of a gun going off. So yeah. um, I was a little confused there. So it, th- this thing about um, the grappling hook and sort of where the uh, mystery bad guy is swinging from and to and winching to, um, this to me is another small example of what I think is uh, artist Andrew Griffith's less time than normal to draw this because mm-hmm. you might pull the camera back and like put it sort of on the table where the three senators are and show like the back of mystery bad guy. 
like starting his like running jump to do yeah. his swing and you'd see the whole senate chamber in front of you and that wouldn't have to be a big panel you just you draw very small if it was a small panel yeah i think that that bang as you say it's it must be the door but maybe i guess the intent behind it is probably to make us think is that that the great grenade going off and then the reveal um, immediately over the the page that it's the the plastic one so so did the did the plastic one have its own like surprise sound effect no 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 it's the it's the door the door banging okay but as a reader you think what what is that bang okay you know is it the grenade going going off so because a page a page earlier a joe breaks a similar door sherlock crashes through a door with her uh robot arm and that doesn't get a bang mm-hmm and, yeah. you, you know, in comics, sound effects are allowed to be inconsistent. If you do rat-tat-tat for one machine gun, you don't have to do it for everyone. Um, but, okay, back and, to you. And then, the, and then the, that, that grenade being thrown, um, I was, wasn't, wasn't entirely sure about Scarlet's reaction. Um, you know, no, sort of, you know, slight, slightly sort of victim there, Scarlet, rather than sort of proactive hero Scarlet. But I wondered whether there was an intent behind that to, to kind of allude back to the death of snake eyes issue where um uh sort of snake eyes flung himself after the the grenade to to save everyone and ended in with uh, her uh with with his death and, and kind of maybe he was trying to plug into that a little bit and, and think that scarlet is slightly somewhat traumatized perhaps by 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 grenades uh and, and, and specifically and snake, and, and, snake and, and and specifically as well the parallel of maybe Sean jumping for this grenade and potentially sacrificing himself as 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 well to try and save Scarlet. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so we've got this um, mysterious bad guy who who appears to be a Cobra agent because um, Doctor Mindbender refers to him as uh, our asset. So um, he has it's all burst his burst his way in, killed Senator Lartner with a fairly devastating crack to his neck your usefulness has expired uh before escaping and and leaving uh his, his him dead bit behind so uh, a couple of things to touch on on there um we've got this mysterious figure here um you know not much to go on beyond sort of seeing a bit of his face and his his hands and beyond that is all you know covered up by a hat scarf uh, they could have even put gloves on him. Oh, they do have gloves on him in certain uh, panels, but not all. Uh, there we go. Error detected. <laughs> and uh, um, it's very much hinted that he's the same person as Al Calbra because um, in the exchange with with Sherlock, um, he says, you're a cocky, you're cock- cocky for a mere MP sergeant. She says, wait, how do you... I've heard that voice before. My aunt, you're the clever one. So, so it's you know hinting that it's the the person that she had encountered in the in the previous issue, and and he was entirely covered up there too. So I guess that is the big mystery: is who is this guy? Do we want to start speculating? I think the issues have have now all been written and uh, mostly drawn, so we're probably free to speculate without it uh, potentially causing. Uh, any changes to the story at this point? Uh, since you're referring to their little exchange, Sherlock and Mystery Bad Guy, I, I should correct myself. The panel where she's running through the doorway, 
the door has already been broken off its hinge. It happens in the previous panel when she punches Mystery Bad Guy through it. Yeah. That does get a sound effect for the punch. Womp. So I, I apologize yeah. for getting the two panels mixed up. Um, I had thought, you know, last issue that Al Calbra, I thought, uh, I guess this is Firefly. But I also feel like um, uh, issue 250 um, wrapped up the mm-hmm. firefly arc and if he came back it was going to be you know like as a joe or as like a like retired or like trying to harm cobra not like a cobra guy trying to help cobra and then stop the good guys yeah um, it, it, i also it, wondered if uh i mean you know hama's making a lot of new joes here i also wondered last issue if hama, hama was making a new cobra mm-hmm. but i know that you have a guess so my my guess at, when we were talking at the end of the last episode of of Fair, my guess was that it was the Black Major. So he was a character that has been introduced uh, before. You know, not a huge amount known about him. We've not seen him for a, a little while. Um, so it would be good to to bring him him back and and sort of some of those um, allusions to the sort of fanatical following that 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 he had and. Um, and his his shooting of the, the the cobra so that he could steal the the fang helicopter was keeping in in line with the kind of character that he was as in in terms of the particularly his action force appearance where he wasn't uh per, you know particularly uh kind to his his followers so yeah that was my that was my little conjecture at the end of that episode now i'm not so sure just in terms of you know maybe his, his the athleticism that he's sort of displaying here it's a you know though with that jump up into the, to the gallery and and that kind of thing i'm now wondering if it might be somebody else my my second conjecture might be that it would be xandar again another underused character not completely you know fully formed in the in the in the comics someone who is quite happy to fade into the background not you know disguise his own identity um, you know, would be very at ease behind uh, a dis- disguise, um, and and you know, in terms of some of those more athletic leaps and things, it would seem believable. So that that's my my short list at, at the moment. We've got uh, uh, Black Major, Xandar, and and Firefly, with Firefly being a little bit too obvious. I think it's a new character. That's my, I'm happy to be wrong mm-hmm. and we'll find out in a month or two. <laughs> the, the, so after, after this Senator had been, um, been killed, that was, um, I don't know. It felt a bit somewhat, um, dismissive of his death or somewhat unintentionally, uh, intentionally and unintentionally comical at the same time. So my quote of the week was, um, uh, bottom line, who's, who said uh, that Senator Lartner is as dead as significant tax reform and apparently a Cobra agent to boot. And in this panel, she's putting her two fingers to his neck. So she's mm-hmm. checking his pulse. Yeah. And then we've got um, S- Senator Ling Torres banging her gavel in a slightly comedic way of saying, order, the hearing's not yet adjourned. You know, <laughs> let's let's keep so, the process. Ignore everything that's going on around us. So I was struck as you were by the the abruptness of 
bottom lines comment here, right? She's she's making a joke, mm. and I think this is Larry Hama's uh, occasionally dark sense of humor. Yeah. Um, uh, hit a book for kids. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not a kid, and I read this book. Um, <laughs> so I've I've previously referred to one of the differences between the Marvel issues and and the Marvel and and Devil's Due issues, and the IDW issues is two pages. These comics all used to be 22 pages, and they're now all 20. And this happened, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, as all the costs for the publishers went up, and they wanted to keep the cover prices where they were, and now and then, when I'm reading a comic book, I get to page 19 or 20, and I feel like the ending is either a little rushed, or if it was written by this same person in that earlier era, it would have some kind of epilogue. And in our, our, our Devil's Due episodes of the podcast, we're talking about these G.I. Joe issues from 2003, and many of them do have an epilogue, you know, one or two page scene sort of after. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I feel like in a different universe where idw makes 22 page comics there'd be two or three more panels where uh bottom line is reacting to or even just like walking up running up to the senator's corpse and and saying these same things but spread out over a few more panels um at the same time we can also i think take a little bit of i mean the whole the whole courtroom scene is a is a truncation is an abbreviation of mm-hmm. an actual Senate subcommittee hearing, right? Like, you know, you you um, you see um, jury trials on on TV and in movies, and you know they all take like thirty minutes, and then there's some revelation. And I've been on jury duty, and it was uh, was it five days, and the first two days were just establishing the credentials of the witnesses. Mm-hmm. Right, like the the experts, doctors who came in, who were just going to weigh in with their opinions. We were, we hadn't even gotten to like, was a person? <laughs> I'm serious. Was a person harmed or not? And there was a lot of nitpicking between the two sets of lawyers. Like one of the lawyers would ask uh, one of these doctors to establish credentials, and it's like they'd ask two questions, and the other lawyer would say objection because like you sort of need to ask one question at a time. Mm-hmm. And you know, you see like a, a a jury trial on TV, and the lawyer like rattles off this paragraph that like recaps the crime and the the person on the stand is like yes that's what happened and i and I, and now knowing a little bit of how it actually works i can imagine the other lawyer saying like no 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 that's uh was objection conjecture right mm-hmm. it's like you can't ask that question you have to we have to ask it as a factual yes or no question so my point here is that even on pages 2 and 3 and 4 or 2 and 3 Right where I know the session is already in progress, but these two senators ask these questions of uh, Hawk and uh, caseload and 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 bottom line, and we just immediately get to. I mean, you know, there there it is. Uh, what is uh, Senator Senator Ling Torres? Very well. My first question is to Hawk. Simply put, why? Like that's a huge abbreviation um, of the actual. You know, because this is a short story, and you got to boil it down. So, if if um, the senator's if Senator Lardner's death comes across as f- rushed or funny, or or uh, bottom line's reaction is rushed or funny or callous, um, it does stick out a little bit. But 
whether 20 or 22 pages. The story only has 20 or 22 pages. So what's going on with it? The, the thing that sort of struck me about the, the conclusion of the, the issue and the way that uh, Mysterious Cobra came in and, and killed Lartner and brought things to a bit of a, an abrupt stop made me think that, you know, have you know, it felt like the Joes were on the ropes. They were giving being given a, a, a grilling, that there was some sense of, you know, jeopardy there. But the Cobras bursting into the room and, and killing the senators kind of seemed to to do um, the Joe's job for them, really, uh, to, to, to establish that, yeah, Cobra are, are dangerous. You need people to protect, you know, the free world against them. And, and maybe things, you know, were done you know, not by the books, but that's kind of what you need to do. So, so let's, uh, let's get up and at them, let them off the hook, get back out there fighting those bad guys. Don't you think? Yeah. The, the issue didn't go in the direction that I thought, because as we said before, I expected the Joes to be in trouble. Um, Cobra is sort of doing, that's a good point. Cobra is sort of doing the Joes job for them here, but they're, I, I chalk this up to this this Hama thing where he's making up, but he's going, you know, it's like the ending to the Cobra Civil War. You know, the Cobra Civil War doesn't end with the Joes decisively militarily defeating Serpentor or Zartan or Cobra Commander, right? Like Cobra Cobra ends the Civil War on its own. Mm-hmm. And so some of this is Hama making it up as he goes along. Uh, and sometimes you get like, you know, like sublime, sub, sublimity, right? Like issue 21, silent interlude, right? Uh, and sometimes you get fun surprises and sometimes you get like crazy cliffhangers. Like what is it? Issue uh, is it 114 or so where um, the three Joes are in the, shoot, what's the vehicle? It's just the big green box from like 92. Uh, the one, uh, what, the one that gets dropped out of space. Yeah, and they're like, they're, you know, and, and the cliffhanger is like, oh no, our parachutes have torn. Ah! <laughs> right? Like, that's that's Hama just writing himself into a corner. And then a few weeks later, like, he has to figure it out. So um, I, I, I think three things are happening here. One, Hama's making it up as he goes along. Two, um, and, and he has good instincts and it tends to work out. It tends to be satisfying or excellent. Two, I think he realizes in writing this issue that Ling Torres is valuable and he can use her later. And Mm -hmm. now the stakes are even higher. Or as he says uh, in answering um, a letter from some crazy person who writes in, uh, in the back of the issue, he says, there's so many characters and it takes a long time to rotate them around. So uh, just as it took a long time for Senator Ling Torres to come back, you know, we're going to sort of think like in three years or six years when she comes back, we're going to think, man, it's been such a long time. Like, did Larry forget? Maybe. There's like 500 characters in this continuity. <laughs> or it's always on his list. Yeah, it's like, yeah, well, yeah. I got to do an arc with the ninjas. I got to do an arc for uh, the build up to 300. I got to do some self-contained. I got to kind of give Helix something to do because I've decided I like her. Like, oh, and then suddenly it's 2026. Oh, Senator Ling Torres. Yeah. It's my, my instinct was that at the end of that last arc where she did appear is that it was almost a fizzle out that that they'd build built her up as such this you know, this big character and and it didn't really play out and, and and you know sort of discarded so so i was glad that they they came 
back to to her as a as a character because it had previously been you know so significant in in terms of, terms of the build up. I wish that the final page or final panel had uh, more of a cliffhanger. This, mm-hmm. this is my same comment from the previous issue, and that doesn't that doesn't take away very much at all from how fun and satisfying this issue was for being a different kind of issue and also just a great issue. But, you know, I also have to remind myself, there have been lots of issues of G.I. Joe where, you know, the final panel is someone saying something and the final panel feels more like a transition and not like a cliffhanger. I think mm-hmm. I always want a cliffhanger because the the times that it has been a cliffhanger, it's been so damn compelling, right? Like the final, the final page of 93, right? Like luckily I had a contingency plan. Boom! <laughs> oh my god, are they dead? Right? No, probably not. These characters are valuable. These characters are valuable. And like, you know, the first issue, the next issue's the next issue's going to start with some explanation or the next issue's going to jump ahead like 3 hours and they're just all in the hospital and they survive. But they're in the hospital. Uh, Duke does promise us that something is going to happen, but it's not as if the final mm-hmm. page is like, uh, like, oh, uh, there's a bomb in Senator Lardner's uh, jacket. Everyone run. Or like Senator Ling Torres like activates after all and pulls out <laughs> a gun and aims it at Senator Raleigh. Like those things would also be cool. They may be a little sort of overcooked. Um, like not, you know, not every issue has to end with some cliffhanger and not every issue has to end with some cliffhanger. That's like an action beat. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I like, I like the momentum here though. And, and it feels like you don't know where it's going to go next, but it will probably be, probably be cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is a good point in that if it's a cliffhanger, as exciting as that is for me as a reader, that means that this is very much just like chapter two of five. And if I give this issue to someone to read, they might say, you know, G.I. Joe's better than I thought. Thanks, Tim. But then they might also say, like, what, do you want me to read the next one? And if I give them an issue of Special Missions from 1988 or this issue without a cliffhanger at the end, they might say, that was really satisfying. Thanks. So a question that I have, and I'm not sure if Larry Hama knows it at this point in January, when he's writing this issue, because he's making it up as he goes along, is, is the murder we see in this issue, is that the titular murder by assassination? Probably not, because there are three more chapters to go, and something's getting built up with the uh, mystery bad guy and or El Cabra. Um, and you know, Sherlock, I feel like Sherlock's being built up to do something. But note that a senator was assassinated in this issue. Uh, when I finished it, I turned back to the cover and I was like, oh, right, Chuckles wasn't in this issue. Oh, right. Was that the murder by assassination? Maybe we'll never know. <laughs> we'll find out when how many more murders there, there are by the time we get to the end of the arc. I spy with my little eye. Okay, I spy Duke with a kitty cup. So on the very last page, very last panel on Duke's cup is Conrad Mauser. Which is uh, Diana Dave- Davis's uh, cat, who we first saw as a commission for Diana, drawn by Jeremy Dale, which she shared with us on uh, the sketchbook show that we did just uh, a handful of weeks ago. 
So uh, for those of you who don't spend a lot of time on Facebook, Diana Davis, who's the research uh, specialist on this comic, uh, is a dog person, but saved uh, an outdoor cat starting, I think, two years ago um, and uh, brought this cat, uh, 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 gave this cat medicine and treated this cat outside. And slowly she and her husband brought this cat inside and this cat really flourished and there's some really dramatic before and after photos and, you know, 10 or 50 Facebook friends of Diana's on the internet really followed this saga when she would post photos of this older, uh, healthy, happy, relieved uh, cat. Uh, so um, as someone who uh, has cats and likes cats, uh, I really enjoyed that saga. And then this like amazing pun happens because <laughs> Diana Diana Davis's favorite Joe is Duke. Duke's real name is Conrad Hauser. Uh, when she adopted this cat, uh, this sort of you know feral cat that had been outside for years and years and was sick, and she she and her husband saved this cat. She was gonna uh, like you know take this cat back to like a rescue organization, and then they fell in love with the cat, and she had to come up with a name, and the name is Conrad Mauser, which is an amazing pun. And, and Conrad, um, who was at least like 16 years old, uh, uh, died recently. So this is both a cute reference, but also a little memorial. So it made me happy and sad. I spy on page four and on page nine, a few word balloons where the lettering is much smaller. There's a lot more white space around it. And this is one of three ways that a letterer in comics can show that a character is whispering. My favorite way, because it's old school, is a dashed or broken line uh, as the oval outline for the word balloon. Marvel also, I think, experimented in the, I want to say, late 90s, where, and actually, maybe maybe IDW? I can't remember. Uh, where the black outline and the black letters would be gray, mm -hmm. which I don't think works because it's not very clear. Um, and also, you can, you can make the lettering very small. Uh, sometimes if the lettering is very small and the word balloon is also very small, that's a way of showing that someone is like down the hall and far away and they might be speaking at a normal volume. You just can't hear them. So just a small language of comics, tools of the toolkit thing. Final I spy from me. Uh, Hawk's hair is brown again. Yeah. So uh, again, your, your words have echoed through the ages and uh, resulted in significant change, possibly, or it might just have happened anyway. <laughs> um uh maybe maybe if the fine folks at idw are listening to this if they are fixing hawk's hair in the previous issue they can fix uh mystery bad guys uh gloves uh at the end of this issue there's this page where it goes from gloves to skin to gloves to skin uh my favorite line is from page seven panel four caseload is explaining how the joes work mm in a way that I think somewhere in the back of my mind I had abstractly guessed, but no one's ever said it aloud. It's never been explained in the file cards or in a story, and it's really satisfying to get it explained here. This line, so, so this line is both like a dose of story logic. It's also really funny. Uh, he's explaining to this senator who's upset. He says, uh, who, um, uh, Ling Torres says, um, says basically, wait, you all took vacation at the same time? What if there was a national emergency? Mm -hmm. uh, and he says, 
We're not dealing with a standing garrison here. All leaves are assumed to be revocable at a moment's notice, and all personnel are required to be capable of being contacted. They're all on constant standby, so it doesn't matter where they are. The analogy would be a firehouse or EMT dispatch center. Um, this, I love the juggling act, that the, the multitasking that that line does. It makes snake hunt make sense, because back then, you know, was it chapter three or four when they're like, uh, we're all going to take vacation yeah. and go to Springfield. I thought, awesome. What? You can't <laughs> do that. Right. It's like when all the cops in the Dark Knight Rises, all of the cops, I'm rolling my eyes, go underground to stop Bane. It's like, really, Christopher Nolan? All of the cops? Um, yeah. It's, but I do like that. Yeah, I do like that movie. The the, the explanation, though, from um, Caseload is sort of, simultaneously goes oh yeah okay that's a good explanation but also what <laughs> that doesn't make any sense if if every yeah. if all of the the people from a firehouse went on vacation at the same time and you know traveled halfway across the, the the country that wouldn't be that wouldn't that wouldn't be good what if there was a fire you know I, again again this and, is like the the, the cats in the, the luxembourg <laughs> luxembourg cat face act the shred the shred the Schrodinger Katzen Act, right? So this is this is Hama taking this very seriously because there should be internal story logic and people who are reading it are invested, but also not taking it seriously and having fun. Hama is doing two things that uh, sort of can't happen at the same time at the same time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so next up, Yo Joage. I think we have to talk about this this angry, vicious, ranting letter <laughs> from this upset, crazy British G.I. Joe, I'm going to say this with finger quotes, fan, mm -hmm. who gets not only a letter in the letters page, but the only letter, because it's so long, it just, it just goes on and on and on. You say so uh, long, other people are saying so good. But, you know, <laughs> um, uh, I'm kidding. Possibly I'm kidding, the greatest letter published. Oh, okay. Ever. Uh, uh, I, 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 I'm going to turn around and welcome Mark to the club. Have myself having had a letter or two printed in Postbox the Pit. I want to say congratulations to Mark for getting a letter printed in Postbox the Pit. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and I would say this even if I weren't sucking up to my co-host, it's a good letter because uh, it's complimentary, which I think is always helpful. You know, it's polite. It brings up a concern. Uh, you know, a lot of readers are, are concerned that Larry Hama might forget a character or uh, might make a mistake because there have been one or two of those. And yet this letter does so with a light touch in referring to the October Guard's appearance in Snake Hunt. And then uh, Mark does something that surprisingly few letters do that get printed in the book, which is make suggestions for what this reader, Mark, would like to see in the book. They're very clear, they're very specific, they're very interesting and sort of fun and helpful. Uh, they're numbered and also half them, at least I'm nodding in agreement, right? So uh, I'd like to see this guy, I'd like to see us go there. I'd like to know what happened here. Do you think you could uh, reveal one more thing about this other thing? Mm -hmm. Whatever happened to that guy? <laughs> and, and then my favorite, Hey, can we get these three awesome artists back to draw some <laughs> issues or pages? And sometimes Larry doesn't answer all the questions, either because they're not numbered and it sort of gets jumbled, or I think questions don't need answering, uh, or because they have been answered a million times before. 
Uh, and Larry answers each of these questions corresponding to their number. Mm. So not only congrats to Mark for a letter, congrats to Mark for a good letter. Thank you. Shall I, shall I read it and I'll be me and you can be Larry so that we can intercut the answer question and answer. Uh, I'll, I'll, <laughs> sure. I'll, I'll, I'll try my best Larry impression. <laughs> I'll get your coffee first. Dear Larry and Co, I really enjoyed the snake hunt epic. Robert Atkins is a very natural fit for the Joe book, so it was good to see him on the ARA book after his prior runs in the IDW continuity. Editor's note, I did enjoy snake hunt. I, di- I did complain a little bit, but I think overall I did uh, I did like it, particularly looking back and, on, on the story, and this was written on Boxing Day. So I was full of Christmas cheer uh, and in a, in a good mood and, and sort of maybe being a bit more half full than, than maybe I, I could have been at the time. I think that Chief certainly was very down on the arc when as we were reading it and I was more positive. There were elements that that did irk me and I didn't think necessarily worked you know, completely. But I think overall I did enjoy it and I did like the art. Editors, uh, you know, commentary uh, stops. All right, so you're back to the letter now. Yes. I was initially worried that the return of the October Guard might be another case of accidentally bringing back characters from the dead, but I am confident it was intended and that you have plans for this one. I'm curious to see the backstory. Could it be related to the appearance of Red Star back in 135, who looked exactly like the late Colonel Brekov? There would be seem to be a trail of breadcrumbs there that you could follow back if you wanted to. A few things that I'd like to see in the book. One... We last saw Cobra Island back in issue 134 as a somewhat desolate landscape populated by red ninjas and bats since being abandoned by Cobra. A return to Cobra Island might be a story ripe with possibilities and one hinted at in the recent G.I. Joe classified toys. Mark, Return to Cobra Island does sound like an interesting springboard that might bear looking into. It is certainly a location rife with revenants. Revenants elements and revenants. Two, it would be interesting to find out more about the Black Major and the Red Shadows and what it is that makes this particular faction unique from the rest of Cobra. Ditto with Black Major and the Red Shadows, but bear in mind with over a hundred major characters and even more supporting characters, it takes a while for a rotation to bring some back into the spotlight. Three, a very early incarnation of G.I. Joe was hinted at in a flashback to the attempted rescue of Claire Hauser, and it would be more interesting to find out about that era. Claire makes an appearance in number 281. Not the question I asked, but but thanks. Four, Sneak Peek died off-screen, and I think it would make for an intriguing plot if this was just a ruse to enable him to remain in deep cover in Darklonia with the resistance and more significantly with his romantic interest. I think we've played with Sneak Peek's resuscitation a bit too much. Maybe he can appear in in an untold tale. 5. Whatever happened to the robotic storm shadow introduced in Cobra's Venom arc? Yet another candidate for resuscitation. <laughs> Six. With the untold 
DuckTales theme, it would be great to see some of the previous art legends on interiors. Wiggum, Wagner, Bright, even just for a handful of pages or for, or for a flashback scene. I can see the current artists doing their own versions of classic scenes and images, but I believe inserting the actual vintage artwork into the mix might be too visually jarring. The difference in modes of coloring would be only one obstacle. Ah, crosswires, Larry. I meant get the back, them back to do new art, not just show the vintage artwork. Oh, well, maybe I'll talk about that in my next letter. Keep making the book and I'll keep buying it. Yo, Joe! Mark, that's me. Will you um, buy an extra copy and razor out this page and frame it and put it on the wall? <laughs> I don't think I'll be going to that length. <laughs> because the first time a famous comics person sent me a letter, I framed it and put it on the wall. Okay. I should say that's only happened like two times. So this isn't like, you know, this is, I don't have a wall of this. <laughs> uh, an, upcoming, an upcoming episode of the Talking Joe live stream, instead of showing you convention sketches and commissions, I can show you the two letters from famous comics people. Uh, anyway. Um, was one of them Steve Ditko? He's a, he was a pro prolific letter writer. Uh, no, but I just realized that that uh, new book from Hermes Press called The Ditko Shrugged, uh, which just came out, uh, it's it's expensive. It's fifty bucks, but um, I thought it was sort of one more biography of uh, Ditko, and in fact, um, it's a big interview book with him. With uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the writer's name. Uh, this guy corresponded with Ditko for years. Mm. So, and and this book is uh, is a thumbs up from the Ditko family. So I'm I wasn't interested when I thought it was just one more book about him because there have been several. Uh, this yeah. might be a definitive book. Anyway, I think we were talking about G.I. Joe. <laughs> there was a great letter to him which said, uh, Dear Steve, any chance that you could send me a signature? And it would be, uh, Dear Sir, apologies, I do not um, send signatures. Signed, Steve Dicko. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, shall, shall we? Wait, is that that's a real story? That's a real story. <laughs> uh, shall we, shall we uh, rate this on a scale of 1 to 10? Oh, yes. Um, ooh. You go first. Hmm. Um, seven. Um, uh, as as you might not, uh, as you might be able to guess, uh, not my favorite coloring uh, in this series. Uh, and um, Griffith's art and storytelling, good, but a little a little less than the previous issue, as we spoke of. But uh, lots of surprises. Uh, character moments, uh, you know, the senator uh, forcing Throwdown to take his mask off, which recalls some previous moments in G.I. Joe continuity. And then when he does, it's it's upsetting. Um, uh, new characters and um, moves the story along. So, uh, you know, could you know, could have been an eight uh, with with a few uh, a seven, but a, but a, a, a very happy seven. I, I was happy when I finished this issue. Yeah, I think I'm in a, in a similar place. I'll, I think I'll go seven. I did really enjoy the issue. I'm looking forward to where this art goes. Yeah, at times possibly this, the the art did look a tiny bit rushed, not not bad, and not not affecting my my enjoyment of the the issue. And and just a couple of those story beats maybe not quite not quite working for me. So I, so I think 
yeah, that that lingering sort of question in my mind of you know if if the cobras hadn't invaded the the chambers and and killed that senator, would would the cobra have actually been a lot better off in in terms of then the Joe is getting some real scrutiny, possibly less of a, a fun action sequence to be be had from from an extended uh, you know run which is entirely uh, set in uh, in a Senate hearing, but <laughs> so I can understand that, but uh, but yeah, question mark there for me. I have two final thoughts on the issue, uh, just little bits. One, um, uh, we see Sherlock in her you know final costume, both on the cover and also uh, the the teaser cover, uh, the ad for the next issue, and um, uh, it says on her hat, police police federal agent, and it says on her armor, police federal agent. And that might be realistic, but I think from a design standpoint, that is a place to have one of those be a symbol, whether it's a G.I. Joe symbol or a law enforcement symbol or something made up. Um, And certainly we see a lot of Cobra characters where they have a Cobra logo on their head or, or mask or helmet, and then also on their chest or their arms. Um, but I think for Joe, it's a smidge redundant. And uh, and then the second thing is, you'll probably refer to this when you tease for the next issue. In the letters page, editor Tom Waltz says that next month, issue uh, chapter three of this story, uh, quote, we're taking a quick detour next month from the main storyline, unquote, so Shannon Gallant is going to come back and draw this issue, and then chapters four and five should be Andrew Griffith, uh, and this is Waltz again. More than one surprise guest ties directly into our current arc. Uh, can't miss issue, I promise. So I am intrigued that the middle of this five-part story is going to take a detour. I'm also happy that if it's going to do that, uh, and this story needed... Um, uh, I guess a fill-in artist to use that term that, you know, that artist gets put on the chapter that is related, but is a detour. Uh, you know, I'd rather that than Griffith draw chapters one through four mm-hmm. and then Gallant comes in to sort of save the schedule with chapter five, that, that would feel a little disruptive. So I am, I'm rubbing my hands together and I'm properly psyched for uh, next issue being different, but also urgent Excellent. Question, tell me what you think about TV. Do you buy toys and buy other things? Who's your favourite guy from that movie? What are the UK pedestrian crossings? Question, what did we ask this week? Let's find out as we speak. Right, so a change of pace. Let's revisit an old feature, listeners' questions. So... I asked on the Facebook group, where do you listen to the Talking Joe podcast? And got uh, some interesting answers back. Uh, we had uh, Ewan, who said that he uh, listens to and from wor- work, which is less exciting, but in Auckland, New Zealand. And I can just, I was conjuring up visions there of, uh, you know, driving to work through uh through hobbit like uh beautiful scenery uh, over there in uh, new zealand you know they, they also have cities there mm, nah, i think that's just a myth <laughs> then we had uh, bart who is driving in cars working around the house or maybe on the motorbike and he uh 
and he shared some of his sweet sweet custom motorcycle helmets that uh, that he creates um including transformers themed uh, helmets s job 7 came in uh, with uh, an entirely uh serious answer i draw a deep bath scented bubbles like candles press play this is this is an amazing uh bit of synchronicity because um not when i'm recording uh from california visiting family but all of the other episodes that i've been co-host i also draw a bath uh scented candles bubbles and i i bring the microphone close to me uh, but i i'm very still i don't move so you can't hear the bath i see <laughs> so we we have something in common <laughs> okay recording and listening um peter some uh, loser who may or may not be my brother generally in the car i also think that this is a stupid question thanks for your input peter uh carol aka richard says uh starts with the introductory stuff on the friday morning uh, or earlier when if he's getting an advanced preview via patreon uh, journeys into work on the Tyne and Weir Metro, experiences deep despair as you tear into the latest Devil's Do issues during lunchtime, enjoy working out which toy is being looked at on the journey home, and finish off in the scant hours of the evening before sleep time. Basically, it makes Fridays worthwhile. Ah. For, for those of you who are, I guess, only listening to the Real American Hero episodes and not the Devil's Do episodes... We, we have been tough, I've been very tough, on uh, Devil's Due, but I should note that uh, the last arc, um, all three of us were uh, complimentary and happy, and, uh, and, and the, future, the future looks bright. <laughs> so if it's a bummer to listen to the podcast when I'm complaining about Devil's Due comics, I know that uh, writer and artist changes are coming up in that continuity in our read-through. So, so come back, or stick around, or thanks. Everyone draw back. <laughs> Richard's Richard's comment on the on the most recent episode where we were more complimentary was that Mr. Finn has seen the light. There is no going back now. <laughs> so uh and uh, my response was one swallow does not make a summer. We shall see. We've still got the last arc of uh, the Blaylock era to go through <laughs> next. So uh yeah, fingers crossed. We'll we'll keep on that vein of uh positivity and uh and and keep on uh keep on you know on the up and up thank you listeners for thank you listeners for chiming in uh this is even a little bit of feedback even four or five people typing one sentence means a lot and is interesting and helpful so uh for those of you who you know you're scrolling through facebook or you're getting an email and you're the type of person who reads it nods and says that's interesting i'm not going to type <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to click reply all, you know, even your, even your 20 seconds, uh, is, uh, is appreciated. Yeah. And we used to, we used to, me and chief used to do the, um, listeners question as a, a regular feature. So it is, uh, is something we can revisit. And if there's a particular question that you would like to be asked, then, then we can indeed pose that question. Uh, maybe, maybe the next, uh, listener question is, um, how how big is the bathtub in which you listen to or record all right that that joke's good and done okay cool um have you got um have you got 
uh, like a parakeet or something in your background. Uh, yes. 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 There. <laughs> there is. Uh, this this house has has a dog and a bird. Every morning when I see the bird, uh, whose name is Ontario, uh, I whistle some music from Peter and the Wolf or the John Williams Superman theme because I want to give uh, him a little something meatier than just like, hello, or like, good morning, or, you know, like Ontario, and then the bird mm-hmm. chirps like, rap, 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 <laughs> say, saying its name. Okay, so I think that is us done with the show. Uh, fun uh, for me, as always, uh, if for nobody else. Uh, next time on Talking Joe, we will be talking on the Disavowed Show issues 22 to 25 which is a four-parter called the last stand which builds on the alluded to return of serpentor a lot of uh, a big blockbuster conclusion to the josh blaylock written era of devil's uh gi joe uh, and then back over here when the next issue comes out we will be covering that it will be murder mystery and mayhem continuing as the newest Joe continues her investigation into Cobra Chaos. Can she, with the help of some special friends, solve the mystery and save the day before it's too late? The plot plot thickens as returning artist S.L. Gallant joins the team to continue the bombastic tale featuring the G.I. Joe known as Sherlock. Um, Tim, where can people find you? If they're not just trying to poke their noses through windows in California, which would take an awful long time to track you down. Instagram, a real American book, Facebook, a real American book, and best of all, a website, which I call my blog, a real American Excellent. And if you want to find more about the show, you can find us in the usual places. Those places are linked to on talkingjoe.co.uk, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are also on Patreon, and a big thanks to all of our backers, Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, and Justin, who are all getting early access to episodes, as well as some exclusive bonus content. So that just leaves us to say, when all is said and done, you can catch us down the road. Because we've been Talking Joe. And we're all out of Joes. Laters. Uh, too much too much bird in the background sorry about that bird bird gets excited when people start to come downstairs <laughs>